Hey, Rob, Kevin Nash. Yeah, I'm upset too, man. Ron was one of my favorite guys to watch on TV also. Plus, he's a buddy of mine. I, uh, I don't know what the hell's going on there. But, uh, you get rid of the, the monster, I guess, that nobody's safe, right? Maybe that's the whole reason I got rid of him. I don't know. Anyway, uh, just a pep talk, man. You know, just gotta... I'm rooting for Orton now. Orton's my new, is my new guy. So, I guess that's all I can say. Uh, and, uh, I'll see you through the week. I'll see you through the window. My grandfather used to say that. See you, cracker. Peace. Oh fuck! <laughs> the uh, the music with with Kevin Nash was like a really interesting dynamic. I felt I was very happy with that. I have no lights on. Looks okay. Looks okay. Look very tired, but that's just the norm. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Burt. I didn't know my display name on. I remember to do that. It was why I was slow to. Uh, Put my uh, whatever I did wrong. I took didn't take the comment off the screen or whatever. But you get what you get, I suppose. Um, I like this. I like Dukes being Duke's name. I like that a lot. Um, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I agree. Agree totally. So R.I.P. to Dukes. Um, we wish him well. We hope he learned a lesson in his final days on this earth. Um, I agree with Kirby. Dukes is in a better place. He's in a place where he can no longer slander all elite wrestling. High chancellor of all things wrestling. Um, a, a great lesson for all of you to learn. Those of you that think you're in this community and think you're safe. You know, there's young Dukes riding high off a critically acclaimed appearance on the late night grin. You know, and he gets off and he thinks to himself... You know, I made it, right? I made it to the big leagues. I made it to the dance, so to speak. I shared a three-hour Broadway with, you know, the great of this era. Let's be, let's be, let's be transparent about it, you know what I mean? He was in there with the world's champion. <clears throat> and he felt like he could do whatever he wanted at that point. You know, he was a made man. That's what the world was. You read Dave's review of the match. He was a made man after I had put him over like that in our three-hour draw. So he logs on to his little Twitter, and he gets all excited, and, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to do wrestling opinions on Twitter, you know, like fucking anyone gives a shit. And he logs on, and, uh, you know, he, he tweets a little wrestling take. Oh, this talk about Rampage, you know what I mean? Two days later, he ain't got an account to show for it. He's been erased from Grin History. Shu and I have deleted the file where he was on simply because we're so scared of being attached to his brand after he had been cancelled on Twitter.com. Um, 
erased from history due to bad tweets, a familiar tale in professional wrestling history. So there you go, folks. Uh, to be clear, Bob was only there for the last hour of that program. Um, he was simply my manager for the evening. But, you know, you get what you get, I suppose. Anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's proceed here. Let's continue with our continue this start our usually scheduled programming. Um, this is the burp. That's it. That's the burp. That's all I've got. No, I actually have some things. Uh, so, firstly, it's Wednesday. You know what that means. Tonight is the assumed night, presumed night of Kenny Omega's triumphant return, which I'm sure everyone is very excited about. And rightly so. That is a hell of a deal. Very happy for my friend Bobby, most particularly. Um, in addition, big time matchup tonight, two out of three falls, Daniel Garcia and Brian Danielson, which is probably not probably, let's be real, the most important match of Garcia's career thus far. It's a very young career, very impressive career, but still, um, huge match for Garcia based on what they produced last time out. I'd imagine it's going to be, um, well, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm setting this up to foul here, but I think I'm pretty confident saying it feels like a lock to one of the matches of the year. I think uh, about 40, maybe more. I've been told that Danielson's made a couple of references to an hour, which that would certainly be something. Um, I don't know how time limits work on a two out of three falls match. If there's no limit, there's a chance Danielson does sanctuary nuts here because Danielson is insane and has had some incredible ideas before in terms of time. So don't be surprised if we get something really outrageous. Uh, either way, I'm very excited. I mean, Two of my favourites to watch. I've really uh, become a big fan of of Garcia's in recent months, and you know Danielson is my pick at every turn for wrestler of ever. <laughs> so um, in that sense, it's a it's a wonderful moment in time. I love these kind of crossroads clashes too with two different you know eras, generations, so on and so forth. But um, wonderful. Wonderful progress. Also, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat is there, as Brucey B says. So, um, yeah, it's good shit. Good shit. Very good shit. So we're going to talk about more in, in detail later. Um, you know, later this evening with the uh, with the what do you call it with the pre-show we're going to do. Like each Wednesday, what we're going to try and do is <clears throat> I'm going to try and watch like. Raw or SmackDown or NXT live every week on Twitch. One of those three. And on the AEW front, rather than doing that, because I'd like to concentrate more, what we're going to try to do is a pre-show hangout and a post-show hangout. And it won't be saying there's like a lock to happen every week, but like you can kind of assume it will happen most times. You'll at least get one of those. The pre-show feels like kind of a lock, honestly. So that's saying that we'll do today. So the, the Burt will have less preview action. It will instead be tomorrow's Burt, which... This particular week may not be a thing, but generally on Thursdays, the Burt will be like a like a and a extension to post-show. So basically, that there. anyway, so that's the Dynamite talk because we're going to get into it all later. Um, is this true about the... Is This isn't actually like what they've said, is it? <laughs> they, aren't, they aren't actually doing one hour for each four, are they? That'd be insane. Pop. Yeah, that spoiled it for me too, brother. Don't worry about it. Uh, I remember Alex McCarthy came on 
I've probably told this before, but whatever. Alex McCarthy came on that night when we used to do the Dynamite preview or pre-show, whatever. And um, so anyway, Alex McCarthy came on that one, and we were talking about it and what finish they should do. And I didn't want to spoil it on the air, so I just kind of talked around it. And then when we got off, I was like, oh, they're going an hour. And Alex was like, oh, no, they're not, are they? <laughs> so, yeah, they're going an hour. Which in many ways, you know, that series was kind of the culmination of Brian's, like, historic run, right? Now, Brian, in his own way, has been on a historic run for 20 years now. But what I mean is... There was that run from September through January where he was like a god. Like he was like, it was outrageous what he was doing. It weren't fair. And that series was kind of the culmination. So it only made sense that he would do an hour draw along the way. You know, it was it was part of the part of the uh, the, the catalogue he was putting together in that first four months. It was outrageous. <clears throat> I haven't seen any of the pre-match. I'm gonna try and watch that before tonight's show. This sounds interesting. Um I'm seeing good morning, Dion. I'm seeing a lot of talk about um, Naito and Billy Oz. Which let's get into. Let's talk some G1. Here we go, folks. All right. A couple of things here before we get to the big matches. Um, the Bullet Club, uh, LIJ, Multiman. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, these matches are very cookie car, but Shingo's like commitment to selling the neck in this was that genuinely admirable considering what this was and where this was on the card on like a finals day, you know, respect to him. He would even like stop in the middle of his offense to sell his neck, which is, you know, outrageous. Um, so shout out to him. I assume they're going to run this El Fantasmo match back at some point, um, which, you know, will be a hell of a time. This match popped me huge on paper. Kushida, Yano, Finley, and Tanahashi up against Jay White, the Good Brothers, and Ishimori. Other than Ishimori, all of these other men were in New Japan when I was at like the height of my fandom for the product. Granted, Finley and Jay White were young boys who used to wrestle each other every night, and Finley would lose every single time, which was, in hindsight, an incredible sort of, um, you know, look ahead to things to come. Ishimori wasn't there yet, but everyone else was there. Granted, Yano and Tanahashi wouldn't have teamed up because at the end it was a different, it was a different time. But even still. Um, it popped me on paper. In reality, obviously, it was absolutely nothing. I'm not an idiot. I was expecting that. But it still popped me as just a lineup. Cole Anderson has got um, Bright Lights machine gun gear now, which is very good. I will say, and I mean this with all love and respect to the great machine gun, they appeared to be slightly tight. <laughs> And he looked actually uncomfortable multiple times, which I would say is an incredible addition to the bit of Bright Lights Machine Gun. Um, so so there's that. Uh, he was in there for most of this, in fairness. I did pop for him and Tanahashi interacting again, even though it wasn't really treated with much importance, because why would it be, in fairness? I like the idea of Finley getting in there as soon as he saw Carl was opening, because he's a chance to kind of, you know, get a shot of the never open weight title. I like that. Tanahashi came in afterwards. They came off, got a little bit of heat. Kushina made a hot tag. They all built all of this to a Gallo-Toriano interaction because everyone loves those. And Yano, of course, once again got the better of the big LG and rolled him up for a, for a pin. So quite the deal here. Um, 
I always have loved the final weekend, or I guess this just midweek, of the G1 where they fly a couple of fresh guys in for the Mullingmans. I remember, like, in 2015, they flew in... Um, they flew in Ricochet. And they may have done the Kushida match. I think they might have done it on the finals night. I'm not sure. But there was I definitely remember him coming in for, like, an eight-man or a ten-man on one of the nights, one of the last nights. And it was hilarious because you could tell that everyone else was fucking exhausted and Ricochet's doing all these spots and stuff. Believe it or not, Carl Anderson and Doc Gallows did not have the same approach. Kushida was a little bit closer, but um, you know it's always a fun deal. So it was nice to see uh, to see the lads out there. All right, let's get into the the, the semi final matches now. Uh, quickly answer this um, question: Should I skip ahead to the finals in the G one or keep trying to catch up on block matches? I would skip ahead to the semis in the final. Yeah, I think that's fine. I mean, I, there's good stuff, man, but you ain't really going to miss anything that like we'll be talking about come December, January time. You know, I, I just don't. Um, that's the thing you have to worry about. Um, we have not signed Alex Picard to the grid. He's very, he's very successful. You know, lovely fellow though. I mean, he would be good on the grid. I just think we would annoy him with our Triple H slander. Saying that, Triple Paul's a hero now, so maybe not. Speaking of such, what are the odds now that Triple Paul is in charge? That the good brothers signed to the Fed. I think it's unlikely. I could see um I could see it being a conversation because like they've signed Dexter Loomis, so like they're pretty um you know, they're pretty desperate at this point to just bring bodies back. Not even warm bodies, really, just just bodies. So yeah, I think they could talk about it. I just don't think, you know, I think guys and Anderson would want a certain price to kind of swallow their pride on that. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure they're really going in that direction. I mean, simply put, there's a couple guys they're going to try and sign that have to pay well for. But a lot of these dudes are coming back. I'm not trying to, you know, give them, you know, take the, take the mick or anything, but I don't think they're making exactly top-tier money, simply put. Um, I don't think you have to pay a huge sum to secure the services of Samuel Shaw, or kill a cross to kind of, you know, <laughs> to sum it up best I can. So there you go. All right. Tamatonga, Kazuchika Okada. This was the first of two semifinal matches, or both semifinal matches. There are only two. Um, this was Okada's 100th G1 match. I believe it was Chris Sampson who gave that stat to Kevin Kelly. That popped me huge. 100 G1 match. I mean, there were seven people that had done this, and they're all folks that have wrapped up their G1 kind of careers in recent times. There's a couple that are still in them, but, you know, there wasn't, like, ancient names because that just kind of gives you a perspective on how many fucking G1s you have to be in to reach 100. So there you go. Right. What's the over-under on Varsity Blondes' ass boys tonight? You mean, like, cage match rating or time? Um, I'll set the line. You guys feel free. Over or under in chat. The cage match rating for Varsity Blondes versus the Ice Boys, I'm going to guess a five is the line. Over or under chat, what do you reckon? I'm intrigued. What we got? Okay, I'll do this in the meantime. If your, if your last question was time, then I, w- I would guess it goes about six, which is still too many. All right. Under. <laughs> Immediate guesses of under for a five. Okay. Um, Everyone is saying under. Well, that fucking rules. Okada's 100th G1 match. There was a great atmosphere for this, a great response to the kind of, um, to the excitement in the building, to the anticipation 
of a major tournament bout. That, again, is something we've been talking about along the way here. Uh, by the way, I, meant, I forgot to mention that Shoot said he had banned Dukes from Twitter for trying to replace him, which is very funny. Um, so there was a great deal of anticipation here, and that, again, speaks to the overness, the increasing overness of Tamatonga in Japan, which has been one of the great stories of this tournament, and honestly, this recent kind of stretch of New Japan, whether you're into it or not, is, you know, it depends, your mileage may vary, but I think it's objective that he has kind of tapped into saying and got over in a way that I didn't necessarily see him coming. So there's that. Okada took control early, and I kind of thought this was what the match was going to be about. I thought the match was going to be Okada in total control because he is, you know, the greatest professional wrestler on earth in kayfabe and depending on your viewpoint maybe in real life we'll debate that another day but in 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 the story of in the world of new japan okada is like king right and all the idea was going to be that he was kind of you know Tamil was fighting up here was a result of that he was a, a pure underdog and i think that was here before i go any further i like the match i don't think it was as rich or as present as i would have liked it to have been um, there was a great moment early where Okada was like almost daring Tama to step up, like encouraging him almost in a kind of patronizing way. Um, because, you know, this is a guy who's been here a million and one times. And as Kevin Kelly put it, one guy is delighted to even be here. The other guy is just trying to get through the, to the, you know, the real spot, the real top spot, the final. Um, you know, Tama, would, he rallied early and it was pretty trim and, uh, you know, pretty um, short-lived and it was popping me. Okada is always cool and laid back, but here he, I thought, was especially unmoved by Tamil, which I thought worked. Then, though, they kind of, to me, went a little bit turn-taking, for my view. Uh, they did two Tonga twists, Tamil did one on the outside, and I thought he was going to focus on Okada's neck momentarily, which was saying that Archer had obviously, you know, had been central for Archer yesterday. Um, it was too... vague in that regard, I thought. Now, let me stress, I'm not saying the match wasn't good. It was good. I thought it could have been better if they'd have committed more to an idea, if that makes if it makes any sense. Um, they kind of went back and forth. There was a money clip tease, which, to be fair, the crowd actually got as close to buying as they, they do with that with that hold. Um, there was a great moment late where Tama, I believe it was a drop kick, or it was some sort of Okada offense, and he defiantly stood up, and he did a great, almost Ishii-esque uh, stagger cell, where he kind of, you know, he, he got himself up, but his legs weren't under him at all. I thought it was great. The crowd loved that. Um, and then out of nowhere, he hit the guns down the counter and the crowd went crazy for it. And they absolutely bit, bit on it and, and were into the idea of an upset. I say all this to say these things clearly worked. I would like to see the same match with these two same spots, but like commit more to Okada being in control for the first act. And I think these would have even more of a kind of emotional punch. Uh, as it was, that still worked the treatment. I mean, the crowd was way, way into it. So again, this is all very just sort of minor things for me personally um there was great drama the crowd really seemingly wanted tama to win and were into the idea of an upset which is again speaks to what we said earlier there were multiple gun stun teases tama does the kind of cole anderson thing with the gun stun where he will really get a lot of counter kind of uh exchanges out of it you know cole was the first guy i personally saw and, I, and you know maybe i'm forgetting someone here but Famously, when you counter Orton's RKO, they do the thing where they, the guy pushes him off, right? He takes a big back bump, sort of sails through the air. In this, um, 
match. And also, what Cole was the first guy that I saw during Tamara's kind of taken it, which makes sense. Gun stuff. Cole does the counter where a guy like just drops to their knees and doesn't like take the bump, but they kind of catch him. They did like four of them here, and one of them was insane. Like Tamara was basically hitting the move, and and I kind of just sort of stopped. I think it works as like a, you know, as a as a play for drama. Um, I could absolutely see someone being like, this is, a, you know, a stretch far in terms of believability. I honestly don't, it doesn't bother me at all in that regard. I think it's a good play for drama and it added excitement to the match. So they were with it very much. In the end, Okada kind of, in a very sort of in fact fashion, cut Tamara off for a big move and then hit the Rainmaker and took it home. And it, it did very much feel like, okay, game's up, enough of that shit. Um, let me introduce some sun here, so I'm not just seeing darkness. At 3 p.m. Um, my God, I forgot what it looks like there. Uh, so, anyway, is that work? That looks fucking, I don't know about that. Anyway, so a good match. Very good match, even. Good to see Tama kind of adding some depth to his match catalogue of previously solid freestyle matches. Not that I didn't think this was like a five-star match, but He's certainly, the ceiling is climbing, and that's all you can do. The most important thing beyond any kind of match quality sort of conversation is that Tamara is getting over in a way that is very unique, I think. As a Gaijin, he's really got their hearts. I think a lot of that is because they've seen him grow in a way that, you know, I think wrestling, honestly, um, bright lights, Joe Hart, but there you go. I think wrestling is very you know, very much benefits from those kind of towels. You know, we were talking about um, about Kofi the other day, on the, I think it was the Raw show. We were talking about Kofi in pretty good detail. Um, so, you know, we were talking about Kofi, and, and that's a good example of it, where the audience has got like an organic reaction or, or connection. They've seen the guy develop. They've seen him evolve. I think Tamar has the same. I'm, I'm not, I want to balance here. That's about. There you go. All right. Um, around Twitter circles, G1 sounds like a slog. Um, do you think New Japan crowds have a blast? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're having, I think they're having a great time. I mean, they're way into this here. And the, like, the crowds are not, from what, from what I can gather, it's not as popular as it was four years ago, but that's not necessarily an indictment of anything. It's just the way things evolve. Like, I think it's still very much. I think the crowds are having a great time. I mean, they're way into this. There's multiple matches for his tournament where they've broke the rules and like just fucking yelled and shit and exclaimed. So it's been pretty cool. Um, this is a good question. I don't necessarily know what they do when Tangaloa comes back. It feels like Tam is too deep in this singles thing for him to just stop it. But um, I agree with Reese. I think they're headed to him getting the belt for it from Machine Gun and telling that story with him getting the win. So there you go. Um, a very good match. Now to the main event, which I've seen has already got some match of the year discussions, and understandably so. Um, this is, you know, not it's not surprising the response to this match, and I really did like it because I'm not about to do some sort of, you know, contrarian hot take. Um, it was spectacular. They're very, very exciting. There are a couple of things I would tweet, but it was very, very good and a great, great time. Now, let's get into it. Naito and Osprey. This one was interesting because it felt to me like Naito had this one. I kind of thought, after hearing how Kevin Kelly um, talked about it, 
I kind of assumed that Naito would be the favourite for the tournament because it seemed like that was the story they were telling. Once Okada was in, though, and I was thinking about it more kind of directly because we knew one side of the final, I was thinking, man, they're going to run Naito and Okada back again this year? Clearly not. I think the biggest thing to take away from this match, more than ideas or story or selling or any of that stuff, and there was those things, don't get me wrong. The main takeaway, I think, was that there was a real chemistry here that I don't think was obvious or, you know, immediate when you just thought of the match. This is their first time in a singles match. Right? I'm sure they've shared tag. This is their first singles match. And they are very different styles. You know, Naito is... He can be explosive, but he's very selective for when you would use that word to describe him, right? He's a guy who kind of lulls you to sleep and he'll, boom, he'll do like a, a quick strike, quick thing, and then a sequence of flurry, and he'll go back to being tranquilo. Whereas with Osprey, he is like all explosion, all dynamite. Everything is, is you know, spectacular and gift-worthy, to, to borrow a phrase. So with that, the match didn't, when I was looking at it on paper, I knew it would be good, obviously. I wonder how good, but I was worried, wondering what they would look like as a pair. It really worked, I thought. They actually worked in a very different way than I expected. Because of the story I thought they were going to go with, with Naito as the kind of conquering hero of this towel, overcoming the ultimate and, and setting himself up to finally walk out of Tokyo Dome as king, which he almost did until Kenta ruined his moment a couple of years back. Instead, he actually, I thought, kind of positioned Osprey as the protagonist. Now, we know that this is very different in, in Japanese wrestling. New Japan here specifically we'll talk about. There are good guys and bad guys, but it is not the way that US wrestling is in terms of how kind of, um, like, that's such a firm rule in mainstream US wrestling. It's not that way. For anyone that does I'm, I'm aware. But, but Stephen Still, if you watch this match, I think you'll know what I mean. They kind of, like, ask for the audience to root for Osprey in some ways. In the sense that while he's a dick, you know, his neck was the main story of this match, right? He came in with the table on his neck and um, Naito worked that neck pretty consistently in a way that I haven't seen him doing sometime in terms of being committed to working a body part. He was locked in on that front. And I thought it was really interesting the way they structured the match because I didn't necessarily see that coming. I honestly thought what we were going to get was Will Ospreay being a real big dick and kind of, you know messing around and bullying and being an arsehole tonight and night eventually rallying and getting the win. So that was interesting. And I mean that as a compliment. It it subverted my expectations. As is very popular to say on the, the internet these days. So anyway, the next up was was very strong on Naito's part. I will say I wish there was a slight bit more focus to Osprey's individual performance in this match. Now let me be clear. I'm not critiquing what he did. What he did was spectacular, as it always is. I do wish um, there was a more central idea. Now, let me be very clear. I may have missed it. I'm not saying that I'm talk I've watched the match once. Come on into the show. An example would be, I think it would have made a lot of sense with all of the tape for Osprey to be kind of trying very hard to secure an early pin, maybe not to the degree that we saw with Naito and Zach yesterday, but I thought it would have been a nice way to play off of what Naito did yesterday to have Osprey kind of knowing if he's going to have any chance tomorrow, he's got to get this one over with quick. I thought that would have been a nice idea. Maybe he could have had a target of Naito. There was one point late where he threw the hook kick and Charlton, I believe it was, got really fired up about the eye of Naito. Um, again, I think that would have added to the match if he'd have had a more direct focus 
as it was, he kind of just did a, a you know a collection of his offense, which is fine. His offense is some of the best in wrestling. So you know, I'm not saying it even as a sort of sweeping criticism. It just was saying that stood out to me watching the meat of the match personally. Again, that's just me. Um, anyway, what else have I got here? Osprey is really interesting in terms of selling. He may be the most extreme example I have ever seen of a guy who bumps more than he sells. Now, what I will say is he bumps to such a level that you can almost forgive the other side of it, where I think he's spotty. I don't think he's like a guy who throws it out the window, I don't care. I think he's a guy who sometimes gets lost in trying to make things look great. And, you know, I thought he can't sometimes forgot the fact that Naito had been twisting his neck two minutes earlier and so on. And that shit happens. It is what it is. But it is slightly frustrating because he does the bumping part of it to such an insane level. Um, like, it's crazy, seriously. It's, it's honestly, he'll take, like, um, there was one deal he took, the Poison Rana, and he did, like, this bizarre, like, fucking crunched cell where he was, like, his head was at his toes, and it just looked amazing. I just think it's it's hilarious that he's so good at stuff like that and has this incredible body control, but he equally is likely to just, like, forget to sell it when he's, you know. It's, it's interesting. I'm sure he'll eventually get there on that front. He's still, you know, the AJ comparison I often talk about this particular part but i know i'm not the first one to make a comparison it's saying he's actively pursued but i have talked about how aj went from being a great bumper to being a great bumper who can really sell um so so there you go um i think osprey will fill out the second part as we go here who we got tomorrow guys okada or osprey i'm really intrigued who we got i want some breaches in the chat I told my boss, you don't you know I'm missing the burp for this. Sorry, go sit down and open Patreon. There you go. It's a good leader, much like myself. You know, if she was here, he'd be able to confirm that. Um, anyway, while we're, we're doing predictions in the chat, the, the late, you know, the final stretch of the match was incredible. Um, the Poison Runner I mentioned, there was a great Destino kick out, which got the place absolutely rocking. Again, they kind of encouraged the crowd to get behind Osprey. Hidden Blade out of nowhere, great near fall. Picked him up the Stormbreaker for the win. I thought it was a great match. I mean, obviously, it was it was electric. The little things I point out are not me saying it's bad. I'm just commenting on the match. Um, a great, great time. Osprey is very, very impressive at this point. His career in Naito, I thought we had a very focused performance here in a way that I personally haven't seen him produce in a while. It doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It means I've missed a lot of stuff. But, you know, it was, uh, it was a hell of a time. Okada is the consensus. Yeah, this is interesting. Okada, just because Bill's schedule is packed next week. Well, he's worked so London on Sunday, right? And then Wednesday, he's doing Dynamite. It's pretty wild. Rice Man is picking the Miz. Interesting. I agree with this. He's often too in love with getting his cool shit into cool moves that he's not willing to compromise that for some creative selling or the damage compromising his moveset. I agree with that. I think he could benefit from being selective. I'm higher in than you are, um, but I get your your take very much. Like I've seen exactly what you're talking about in the sense that like you can probably leave some of the stuff on the cutting room floor in the name of, you know, establishing the neck as a more genuine theme throughout the uh, the match. I don't disagree with you. I will say though, that I find him to be so like downright exciting that I, I find myself look, overlooking flaws and, and, you know, kind of weak spots and, so on and so forth. I just think he's so, he's so uniquely dynamic. Um, again, I, I know I keep doing it, but 
once upon a time in the mid 2000s, there was a bunch of great athletes doing really cool moves. And then there was AJ Styles. And I think it says a lot about Osprey that as great as everyone's offense is now and as many great moves as everyone can do, he still makes me say, oh my God, you know, he, he he's unique in that way. And he hits really hard. I mean, there was a moment in this match in a strike exchange where he threw a, a slap and the place sort of shook it, you know, I mean, it was, it was incredible. So he's a, he's a premier meathead wrestler. And I don't mean that as a slight, I'm a Roderick Strong fan. So, you know, he does everything with such intensity that it pops me. Um, Osprey Omega in the Dome. I think that's very likely, yes. I would agree, Mad King, certainly. Sometimes that's what makes him frustrating to me, but Naito's definitely still capable. Osprey's top 10 in the world. I very much struggle with those lists now, but seems like that'd be a, yeah, that'd be a, a, a fine take. I think that'd be the consensus, certainly. Um, Crokey Boy picked Lexi for the G1 final, which would be interesting. Oh, man. Cody, you could have been there, bro. We could have been there for um, Bray Wyatt's debut. Osprey pack all out. And that's definitely something that you may see, you know, very soon. It wouldn't surprise me if that is equally um, – that wouldn't shock me for those UK shows they just booked. I don't really think it's necessary because that building they've booked is not really the most illustrious, you know, room to run. But they're only two nights. They may want some big matches, you know. Yeah. Um, I would agree. Kenny's got a much greater grasp of like the nuance and detail you can weave for our wrestling match. I don't think Osprey is completely devoid of it. I just think he's like so in love with the physical frills. That's that would be my kind of um, that would be my take. I said Lexi all cats while talking to friends about wrestling and they were absolutely confused. That's what I mean. They're old, right? It must be. Yeah, Lexi all cats is one of those. Um... So that's actually, the Lexi bit's kind of layered. But you have to be very careful with how you like work bits in and out of, you know, real conversation. So some of you may know this. This will pop my brother when he hears this because this is a, a, a great tale from yesteryear. But Alexa Bliss is one of those wrestlers who will use her shoot name on social media, right? Like she'll have like, you know, it'll be like at Alexa Bliss, but her name will be like Lexi Kaufman. I guess Lexi Cabrera now, right? So one time my brother was doing something. I will not talk about what he was doing because, you know, it could be incriminating. But he was doing something that was taking his attention. He was focusing on saying very, very hard. And I was just talking to him about the wrestling. You know, I was sitting there just talking about wrestling. Kind of talking to myself, really, but he was listening to it. And um, we were talking about, this was like 2017. We were talking about SummerSlam. And you know, they were doing Bailey Alexa, and Bailey got injured, and then Sasha stood in. So I was telling him about it, and I was explaining it to him. And I went, are you listening? He went, yeah, I'm listening. And he said, well, what am I talking about? And he, he said it right. So I carried on. I was talking about Alexa and Bailey and Sasha. And he goes, his way of signaling to me that he was listening was, he said, who? Kaufman? And I swear, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that was his way of signaling to me that he was really in the loop of what was going on. He didn't just say Alexa Bliss, he used the shoot name <laughs> to, to signal to me that he was really concentrating, which is, um, that became a bit, for the longest time, he and I would just refer to Alexa Bliss as Kaufman, like, you know, Andy. And, uh, there was a few times on the distraction where I came really close in the early days to just saying Kaufman. Like, that was a thing that we all called Alexa Bliss. Had to be careful with using insider bits with normal folks. 
this whole show now is an insider bit. So Lexi Allcap does not fly in the wider wrestling world, believe it or not. As funny as it is, it actually makes no sense. So there you go. Um, yes, Chelsea Green and Hidden Blade are very violent. Very, very violent. Um, yes. He's definitely not one for the detailed match review, man, which I have a great deal of respect. I mean, I, I, Oracle's one of my favorite people, and he definitely doesn't like Willow Spring matches, so nothing wrong with it. Yeah, the hidden blade on Phantasmo was horrific. Um, hold on, we're talking about NKPW UK. Shoot loves the, the New Japan uh, layers very much, very, very much. Kip Sabian propaganda continues from Reese, which is unfortunate. I saw that the Brits beat up Roddy. That was a disgrace. Um, Grand Slam Pam is very funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to scroll. I'm seeing the reactions to the Kaufman business. It just it was he, when he listens to this, it will pop him because he will absolutely remember what I'm talking about. But he was focused on saying else, and that was his way of signaling to me that he was in on the conversation. Who Kaufman? I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Anyway, there you go. All right, let's uh, let's do something else now. I have a very different bit planned for the rest of this show. We will now head to 1998 <laughs> for a match that has no relevance as of right now. But I was thinking about it last night with my time machine TW grin. And it popped me, and I wanted to watch it. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to watch it, I'm going to watch all the segments. This just makes a Burt segment, right? It's, good Lord, it's getting dark. All right. Let's fuck it. Let's stick with it. I'm gonna, I was going to get up, but that seems unnecessary. So let me paint the picture here. We're on the heels of Starcade 97. What one is that, Joe? Well, that is the one where WCW took the greatest build in wrestling history and took a vile shit on it. That was unfortunate. No need for that. It was a disgrace. It was a sad time. They fucked it up. How do you fuck up Sting beating Hulk Hogan? I don't know. No one even thought the match would be good. How do you make it worse than not good? I don't know. All right? It's not my not my my decision. Things happen. Politics were played. So on and so forth. It's unfortunate. All right? So Stargate 97 has come and gone. Brett the Hitman Hart is in the promotion. As I unveil more of the sun. This isn't really working the way I want it to. So anyway... Bret Hart is in the promotion. Um, he is clearly set up to have some sort of feud with the NWO. But first, we need to get Brett comfortable in the promotion. Who better than someone who he has an actual personal distaste for, who may or may not have fucked him over on certain house show matches, and also um, has shown a general lack of chemistry with, that being the nature boy, Ric Flair. Now, some of you may be saying, why is Bret Hart and Ric Flair a weird match? They are two of the great workers in time. I will say, think about that for a moment while I turn the light on because I've decided I can't actually proceed this way. It is annoying me that much. In the meantime, enjoy this image of Jack Crosby and this music. Enough of that. 
Let's get this print off the screen. Here he is. Yeah. Let me tell you about Jack Crosby. Last night, he said, I'm on for Friday, by the way. I'm on for that world-class show. I said, oh, yeah. Jack Crosby, how many of the TV shows have you watched so far? And he goes, oh. I got asked him to do algebra. And he said, I didn't know we were watching the shows. I thought it was a watch along. It's five episodes, Crosby. Come on, get a clue. Anyway, so two of the premium, I'm going to put the overlay back on. Don't worry, everyone. Everyone calm down. All right? So two of the premium workers of time, Rick Flair and Bret Hart, had a very strange dynamic and still do have a strange dynamic. It's a very funny bit where neither of them think the other one is very good, or at least they pretend as much. Bret Hart thought that Ric Flair was all go, all pace, but without any psychology or thought put into his work. And by contrast, Ric Flair just thought Bret Hart was a plain old fraud. He thought he was a guy who was top of the WBF when no one cared about the WBF. He'd never done work in a place where Rick had kind of cared or respected it beyond doing the WBF stuff, which he didn't think much of. So you have this weird dynamic. Their chemistry was always slightly off. Their matches in WWF, of which they had a lot, a lot of them... Uh, mostly house shows that made like Coliseum video and stuff, including the title change one. They never quite clicked, but Bret Hart was a slight conundrum for WCW. Now, in a good booker's hands, it would have been a chance to change the main event scene and have good wrestling matches in your main events, which was um, a novel concept in WCW by 1998. What that meant was, initially, who do you put Bret Hart with? Clearly, the money matches the NWO. Objective. So, unfortunately, there was no guys in the NWO that he could have a really good match with at this point because either A, they'd stop caring, B, they never were good, or C, they were washed. One of those three for almost everyone in the group. So you were kind of stuck. The guys you could really have good matches with were the guys underneath, right? Like a, a um, well, a, an obvious name that we don't need to get into. But, you know, the underneath guys, the mid-card guys and the kind of workhorse guys, you can't start with them, though. You can't start with a few with the aforementioned or aforenot-mentioned um, uh, FA fella that Oracle talks about a lot. So that leaves you with Ric Flair, who is the natural middle ground for such a thing. The night after Starcade, Brett comes out and does a promo and talks about all the guys he would like to wrestle in the promotion. He does not mention Ric Flair. In response to this, on the same show, Ric Flair comes out with a paper... <laughs> And he discusses the fact that while Bret Hart may be a premier columnist and wrestler and big star, he is no Ric Flair. And he should have mentioned Ric Flair when talking about guys who would like to wrestle, you know, the real best of all time. At this point, Rick cites the Baltimore Times. He puts on glasses. It's raining very loudly. Jesus, wet. give me it. I'm trying to talk about 1998 here. I'm going to have to close the windows now like I'm in some sort of... Anyway, so as I was saying, he gets the Baltimore Times out and he puts his glasses on and he reads an extract from Dave Meltzer. <laughs> this is on Nitro, by the way, with Gene Oakland interviewing him. And it's a sad effect of great performances for so many years. You know, Ric Flair is the greatest of all time. And he, he literally just says, coming from Brett Skyer, Dave Meltzer, and he does a woo and walks off in triumph. It's a real thing that happened on the TV show. By the way, it rules. I'm not saying it's a criticism. It's just very funny to think about. This is 1998. Um, so that's the first segment. The next week, they do a very famous head-to-head -head promo deal. Rick starts 
Britt interrupts, Genie's in between them, and they go back and forth. And it's a classic segment, one of the last great Nitro segments, honestly. Um, I recommend it greatly if you want to watch the match. Watch this segment first. It's interesting because WWF had really not run Atlanta much at all in the time that Brett was a top guy there. So here in Atlanta, Brett is kind of booed and he's like a villain for even suggesting he's as good as Ric Flair, which is one of the weird issues with booking the match, but we've discussed why they kind of had to. Um, appears to be a thunderstorm. Um, hang on a second. Good fucking. There you go. No, that doesn't work. Look at this. Right. I'm not muted. So that was the window slamming. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is a catastrophe. All right. Anyone that's been in Great Britain knows that it's been very, very hot. I did not think I'd have to close the windows. Anyway, it's not the AEW tag team. I'm trying to... Nitro, right? Here's what I'm saying. So they do a famous head-to-head segment where Rick keeps asking him to say it over and over again. You keep saying, say that slogan of yours, and Brett has to keep saying, I'm the best there is, the best there was, best there ever will be. Whole deal. Um, it's tremendous. Watch the segment. It's great if you have any interest in it. Then, two weeks later, I believe it is, they do basically the same segment. It's less good, but Brett does have a great promo where he talks about how, you know, he doesn't have to say it. On, on Sunday morning, Rick will be fully aware of what the cat trade is because he'll believe it. And, you know, he has a lot of respect for Rick, but he ain't Brett Hart, that kind of vibe. Very good promo from Brett. This gets responded to with USA chance, which reminds you of how many people that watch WCW, either A, would have a just distinct, you know, inherent bias towards Ric Flair, and B, how many would still resent the fact that Brett was anti-American, which fucking rules. Um, that is very, very funny and a thing that I think we often forget about. Nonetheless, it's a very good pro. Now we get to the match. I'm going to look at the chat to see if I've missed something in the midst of me closing windows and turning lights on. Um, you said Ray couldn't be a top guy because too many matches were in WWE where it's hard to have classics. Um, Brett had tons of classics in WWE. Does that not prove how good he is? It does, but it's a different uh, role. So Brett would be more comparable to someone like an Edge or an, a Triple H in terms of how many chances they have to have great matches. They had less than those two. But often when people talk about Edge or Triple H, they say, look how many great matches they had. And it's like, well, yeah, but they wrestled title matches every month on pay-per-view. Brett was the 90s equivalent of that. Now, what makes Brett special is he had some great matches in 95 where he was not really given much of any opportunity to do so. Um, you know, the, P the PCO one being the obvious example. So it's that, but it's also an example of the role. Ray was always an upper mid-card guy who would get 10 to 15 very seldom did Ray have a chance to have a 25-minute world title match. You know, it's that that's what really limits him. In the same way that a guy like Dolph Ziggler has been limited, you know, on, on a lower level. So that's basically the idea. So anyway, to sold out 98. This is pop me. Um, to sold out 98 for this one. And I think this is their best match. Every time I watch this match, I come out with a different conclusion as to how much I like it or dislike it. It's a very interesting match because... Ric Flair is at this point 49, I would I would believe. And Brett is in a slight haze. I mean, 97 was his best year, artistically, commercially, critically, so on and so forth. But he still looks a little bit empty. He just looks slightly hollow after what happened in Montreal. And I think he's confirmed as much. And I know Bischoff often will allege as much to try and protect his own usage of Brett. 
I think the truth's in the middle. I think there is something to be said for it. Um, but he's still Bret Hart. You have this feeling out process early. The crowd is not red hot for this, which limits it slightly. But early on, they established this idea that Bret is a step ahead, basically. You know, as great as Ric Flair was, as he said in one of his own promos, he isn't the guy he was 10 years ago. Bret is a step ahead um, pretty consistently. It is pure wrestling initially, not the stuff we can't throw punches. What I mean is it's just, you know, hold for hold, exchanging sequences, so on and so forth. Because the, the, the conflict here is two baby faces, two legends battling for pride and battling for ego. That's what they're wrestling for. So there's no, the conflict isn't a heated, let's go out there and bleed and, you know, kick the shit out of each other. The conflict is, I want to prove to you I can out-wrestle you. That's, that's simple as that. Very traditional build in that sense. One of the last ones WCW ever did. So in that realm, Brett is getting the better of it. However, he starts to have a little bit of fun. He puts on a figure four leg lock, which I think changes things kind of tonally and gives Rick um, the encouragement he needs to soon turn the, you know, turn the tide a little bit and change the flavor of the matchup a little bit. So unable to wrest himself into control after a couple more kind of, you know, unsuccessful sequences, Flair gets himself into like a fiery exchange. So like he gets pissed off and he kind of walks towards Brett and pushes him and gets slapped on his backside, immediately flawed, and he gets out of the ring and resets. Bobby Heenan has a great line that's always stuck with me. He says, Rick Flair's walking around at ringside and he keeps repeating himself 13-time champion, five-time champion, getting himself in the right headspace. Like that was going to help him in the match. That always popped me. So he gets himself back in, and it's like this reset, this start fresh, and this trying out wrestling the way we did at the start of this deal. Again, same results. Bret Hart, is he's going to out-wrestle him. He's too good. He's too fresh. He's a step ahead at every turn. So now Flair's without choice, and, you know, naturally responds this by poking Bret in the, high, in the eye and going to work with closed fists and throwing those famous corner punches. Um, that puts Flair into control, and the chops soon follow, and, man... This is the match's best moments. There's a couple moments where Flair throws the big chop and Brett eats it and throws a right hand back and they start trading and it is hot. Great timing, great physicality, intensity, awesome, awesome stuff. Um, that's the match's absolute highlight. Eventually they reach a double down and that sets up Brett's comeback and he goes to work on Rick's leg. Um, he even goes for the figure four on the post and Rick is not allowing two figure four Gimmicks in one match, Rick shoots him off into the rail, and Brett takes that nice and it actually sounds gnarly out there. It's pretty good stuff. Um, so then Rick, in in a classic case of one-upsmanship, which perfectly suits the story they're telling, right? In a battle of ego, Rick says, Okay, well, I'll work the leg. And he goes after the need to set up the figure four. It makes sense both for the story they're telling, as I just said, but it also makes sense on a very simple basis of sharpshooter versus figure four. You know, that's that's literally as simple as it is. So with that in mind, Flair goes to his finish after working the knee over some. Brett fights free. We then go back to the strikes, and there's a great moment where Brett does some fighting spirit business and defiantly stands up to the chops. And I've always seen it as, in the match, that is almost like Brett kind of breaking the will of Flair and overcoming this sort of, you know, symbolic hurdle of a guy he's beaten before but is ultimately the WCW guy and kind of, you know, entering the promotion once and for all. Now, what happens for the rest of the time will live in infamy, but this is what it is. So he gets through that, and that's really the end of the match. He strings together a couple of offensive moves, goes to the sharpshooter, and Brett and uh, Rick submits, which, listen, I try to make a hero of Rick Flair, very flawed man. Everyone's very entitled to hate him. I think we should all agree, objectively, he's not a good person. But 
it does speak to where wrestling was at then. That it's like jarring to see a guy like Rick like just tap clean and just submit because there weren't many dudes that imagine on the roster that was lining up and being like, "Yeah, Brett can beat me," you know. So that um that is the match from Sold Out '98. Why did I review this? I don't know. It popped me. It is not a great match, but it is a very interesting match. And if any of you are vaguely intrigued by, I recommend you watch it and feel free to tell me what you thought of it. You can even email me at email it to me, which I know we've got a couple clogged up. I'm going to get to them. I'm not ignoring them. Grinnercircle at gmail.com because it is basically an old school NWA style match in 1998 WCW, which is about to become even further from those southern roots than it ever has been before. I mean, it's about to become. In the coming years, it's going to be a, a laughing stock. You know, so it's a really interesting match. It's Flair's last, I would, again, I don't want to use the word great, but it's his last really strong WCW match. He has a few in WWE, honestly, that are really impressive, but in WCW, it's his last one. Brett has a very famous match in WCW with a certain fellow we don't need to talk about. He has a couple with Booker, I think, too. Um, but, you know, if we're being real, it's like one of his last truly significant, memorable encounters. So... A very interesting tale, I feel, with these two. Two wrestlers who are very different. Two wrestlers who still butt heads when they give their opinion on one another. Um, two of the great wrestlers in very different ways. And one is a lot more respectable than the other, I think it's fair to say. But it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I like the match very, very much. So there you go. A little bit of a offbeat segment for the fame, Burt. But I know that was of any interest to you all. Um, let me scroll back here. I wonder which great modern wrestlers wrestle embarrassing late in life to dismal results a la Flair. Um, uh, that's a good question. I'm going to go with... Oh, fuck. Because that's the thing that always pops you, right? Like, you know when like people talk about today's race, like, oh, maybe AJ Styles is washed. It's like, no, man, like... <laughs> We've seen washed old wrestlers. That dude ain't here. He's just ain't as good as he was. It's different, you know. Um, current wrestlers are going to wrestle way beyond their years. Shit. You really stumped me with that, you know. There's a part of me that feels like Moxley will never, like, retire because he'd rather the idea of being able to just do, like, insanity. But I feel like he, because of his, the way his brain works, he would just kind of go full Terry Funk with it, you know. It'd be like a charm, which with Flair was very seldom the case when he got really old, you know? I'm not sure. Tell me you got, chat. I'm intrigued. Um, yes, Brett does hate taking shots for Joe who asked that. He hated it. As Bish says, Brett always suggested he hated taking shots from Flair as he felt Flair used it as a lazy way to avoid doing any actual work during matches. It's a big-time philosophical clash. Um Brett is a big, like, let's sit down and think about what this match is about and what we're trying to do here, what story we're trying to tell. Um, that's why if you watch, like, some of Brett's house show matches or even some of his TV matches, unless there's stuff with, like, substance and kind of meat and stuff that you can sink his TV into, they're kind of cookie car. He'll just sit, like, shy and sell, come back, finish. Like, he's, he's a culprit. He's guilty of that. Because he needs stuff that's, like, got some, you know... Some meaning to it. That's why this match is good. Because it does have that. Flair, while he can tell those stories, he is much more at home just going like, you know, just being like an all-action wrestler and working his his beats and reacting to the audience live. And it would drive Brett crazy because, like, I mean, he even tells stories about, like, there was finishes he would try and that they would have booked in house shows and, like, 
it was supposed to be a sharpshooter, and Rick would just not kick out of the of the small package <laughs> in the finish. He would just get pinned, and be like, "Yeah, the crowd was hot." And like, I think that was his genuine. I don't think he was trying to be political because he'd already tapped to Brett, and you know when he lost the belt. So, I think it's just a massive philosophical clash, which honestly, I kind of find to be endearing because it shows you how rooted in their beliefs both guys were in terms of wrestling. So there you go. Um, I agree. Too much of tapping out, uh, too much of choking out as as Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13. I totally agree. And I and Oracle talked about the Regal thing on the historical Oracle episode. Not the historical, the Green Grappler about Regal. We talked about it in pretty good detail. Like I agree with that totally. Like if everyone waits in the hold forever, then it has no real meaning when someone does. Jericho is a very good pick for someone that would wrestle beyond that. Maybe already has. Um I mean, last week, too, I'll take that back. Jericho's still great. Well, he's still good. He's still good. Um, okay. Cardona is a good pick. Bubba Ray Dudley has already achieved it. I think Kingston will be a Terry Funk case, but, yeah, he'll definitely wrestle forever. Um, the Undertaker has already achieved it, which fucking rules. Yeah. Good stuff. Orange Cassidy can do stick for years, you're right. All right. We have one last piece of business to do here. The Grin Grappler. We ready to find out when the Grin Grappler is? Announcement time. All right, folks. Here's the matches for Grin Grappler Stan Hansen. I'm going to put these out on Twitter literally in like a minute, but we'll announce it here. Give a little bit of juice to the bird, you know what I mean? Grin Grappler Stan Hansen is set for Tuesday, July 23rd, six days away. The matches are as follows. Act one, we head to September 23rd, 1981, for one of the most iconic, incredible, awe-inspiring Clash of the Titans bouts ever, Stan Hansen versus Andre the Giant. If you don't know what this match is, and you've never seen it, and you're thinking, how has Andre worked his way into a grin grappler? You are in for a treat. The summer blockbuster of all wrestling summer blockbusters. Up next, Stan is with Terry Gordy, which is something we're going to go back to here in a moment. Up against Dorian Terry, the Funks. Uh, we were just talking about Terry a second ago. I was just talking about Terry. That speaks for itself, right? Blockbuster matchup. Act two. By the way, that was August 31st, 1983. Act two, we head to 1987. For January 6th, a feud that I have actually not seen anything of, but is Oracle's some of Oracle's favorite stuff. We head to Puerto Rico. Hanson up against Carlos Colon. I've heard these matches are crazy. That is how we're kicking off Act 2. January 6th, 1987. We then jump to the um, to December of 88. December 16th to be, to be specific. Stan is with Gordy again up against the all-star pairing of Kawada and Tenru, which is maybe Stan's greatest man. I mean, that match is absolutely outrageous if anyone's ever seen it. And we close with Act 3 with two matches, one of which we actually covered on the channel recently, but I just want to do it on Green Grapple because I think it's such an awesome match. And it's, it's probably his best singles match. I can't leave it out. We had to 1993 for two absolute classics. Kawada in the first, February 28th, 1993. And then 
July 29th, 1993, the recent episode of LNG main event that Shu and I did up against Kenneth Kobashi. Um, a masterpiece. Both of them, but that one especially. So, an insane, insane lineup of matches for the Stan Hansen. Grin Grappler, that is Tuesday, the 23rd. Very happy with the lineup. I hope you guys have time to watch those or just enjoy the show generally. I mean, it's going to be a good time. Um, you did not imagine this. I left you out of the bio because I know I wouldn't be able to do it. But the uh, the the Tokyo Joshi Pro Talk will happen. I want to review the Princess Cut. I just I got stuck doing WCW stuff because it popped me, you know. But it will happen. I, I'm promised. I mean, I have the Wrestle Universe thing, so I, it honestly encourages me to do it. <laughs> quite simply put, it, you know. So it will happen. I don't know if the Burt will be on tomorrow. I genuinely don't know. Um, so it could be Friday for that, but uh, it will happen. Even this week, even if it has to go into next week, it will happen at some point, right? So that's the thing to look forward to. Um, I agree; it's very funny that Bobby wanted Kofi Kingston Green Grappler over that. What an absolute nerd! Fucking loser and a bootlicker. Um, look, I can't. Shoot, asked me about this, and I can't remember. I remember the Kobashi match that comes after the July 29th one, but there's one before, right? I always get this confused. Anyway, we talk about this on the Green Grappler or whatever. Look at this piece of shit. Just such a, like, hater, man. Like, you always hating all the time. Look at him. He has his own overlays. Look at this dude. Dude's own show now has, like, three guests on it because he's such a big star and he still whines about it. I've got to watch Stan Hansen matches, you know? Here's what it is. Terrible. Um, anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Back tonight for the uh, for the Dynamite show. What I'm going to do on Twitch now, because someone put in our, in our comments, I actually appreciate it, because I don't know how it works genuinely. So if you ever need adjustments, tell me. Someone said about like being live on Twitch and the notifications and such. I don't know how it works. So what I'm going to do is, on, on Patreon, I'm just going to put like a simple written post that just says, you know, um, hmm. Ah, oh, okay. Got you. Yeah. Well, I think the, the second one is Stan's probably best singles match, so that speaks for itself. But I have seen that. So, um, what do you mean call it? Was it? Oh, yeah. I'm going to just put on the Patreon nowadays, like, I'm going to live on Twitch in five minutes, and I'll delete it after so it doesn't clog it, but just as, like, a signal to... Because I know that the way it works right now is I post it to Patreon after, which um, is great for, like, collecting the content, but it's not necessarily great for signaling when stuff's on and so on and so forth. So, uh, so there you go. Um Such a lovely boy. Whatever brain controls his fingers is a fucking menace. Oh my god, that's amazing. We we can. I don't know what one would do it for, but yeah, I'm I'm for it. All right. Appreciate you guys. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, see you all tonight for the dynamite pre and post. Big show ahead. House of the Dragons business. I'm very excited. There's a couple of things there, man. With Kenny, assume Kenny. And with Garcia and Danielson, for me personally, I'm just so, so excited. So much to look forward to. I'll see you there. I hope you enjoyed this. Keep grinning. All how. Enjoy this outro.